The year was 1996. It was a really big deal to get into the AP art program of the bedroom community outside Chicago in Valparaiso. Valpo High School was notorious for its incredible arts program, and I had gotten in. To get in was one thing, but to survive as a freshman meant you followed three rules religiously. Number one, dress like the other art students. Of course, I was rocking a pixie haircut and baby doll t-shirts and chokers and the appropriately alternative large baggy skater girl pants. This was the 90s after all. Two, keep a low profile. There were certain tables that you were allowed to work at and certain tables that were off limits because they belonged to the upperclassmen. And number three, only the upperclassmen got to decide what music we listened to while we were working in AP art. And there were three bands that were on regular rotation in our angst-filled alternative artistic space. Radiohead, Bjork, and the Smashing Pumpkins. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness was the third album by the Smashing Pumpkins, and it had been released the year prior. So it was everything. Billy Corgan's singing to Tonight Tonight is basically ingrained in my mind as the soundtrack to my experience as an art student in that class. And why exactly am I giving you this fun historical tour through my AP art days? Because I need you to fully grasp the severity of my total shock and awe that literally had me falling out of a chair when the guitar player of the Smashing Pumpkins reached out to me about a year ago on social media and said, Hey, I'm a fan of your work. (laughs) I'm not even kidding you. I fell out of my chair. Fell out of my chair. Jeff Schroeder is an incredible guitar player who joined the Smashing Pumpkins in 2007. He also studied comparative literature at UCLA, where he specialized in Asian American literature, Francophone literature, and critical theory. And it's precisely that unusual combination that makes up Jeff, the fact that he is a rock star and is a deeply academic and spiritual person. That is what I wanted to get into. I wanted to explore how we can become more comfortable with being more than just one thing or profession on a business card. You know, it almost feels like there's a pressure, an external pressure, but also internalized pressure to attach or identify with one vocational story. I am a blank. I am an academic, or I am a musician, or I'm a podcaster. But with everything in our world shifting under our feet, and especially the way we work the last couple of years, I mean, so many people are leaving the idea of a nine-to-five job behind. Is it really still realistic for us to cling to a notion that we are one vocational story? More and more of us are having a hard time answering the question, so what do you do? And I think this is key for us as creatives. And remember that I consider all humans to be creatives. But I think that in order to be the kind of people who have an imagination that's large enough to make room for new possibilities to emerge in our lives individually and collectively, we have to unknow the vocational story as being a static identity. How do we learn to harmonize the wholeness of who we are? How do we learn to hold what seems disparate about who we are in tension so that we can become comfortable with being a chord, being a harmonizing collective of multiple things at once. 
And to see that and remember that that chord is unfolding, (laughs) it's a melody, it's not done, it's not finished. So with that, let's dive in to episode three of Unknowing season two with Jeff Schroeder. So Jeff, I kind of had a jaw drop moment when, when we met on social media, because I, I like I had like a full on like I can't I can't believe I, that that we're, we're like talking right now, and I felt like it would just be appropriate for me to like fully be vulnerable about the fangirl moment that happened when we first met on social media. So it's nice to meet you via the screen, but like a little bit more personally now. <laughs> oh no, it's so great to meet you too, and I you know and I and, and in all honesty, I feel the same because I became a fan of your work. And so I was just trying to, I'm like, well, I need to meet some of these people. And, and, you know, and and a lot of the people at the center, especially on the pocket, don't have a big social media presence. So you're like kind of the one (laughs) that probably gets, you get all the, you get everybody, even the, you know, even the crazies. Yeah, it's so strange. I I don't know why Richard isn't more active on his Insta. It's just weird. Like he like never posts pictures of himself. Well, thank you. It's, it's such an honor to be able to spend some time with you and, and have you on the show. So welcome to Unknowing. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Oh, my, my complete pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Cool. I'm glad we could do it. Wonderful. So since you know the show, you know that I like to start the conversations by asking about the map that you were given growing up. Mm-hmm. What what constitutes the basis of how you initially made sense of the world and your place in it? So Jeff, what was the map that was handed to you? Um, again, you know, because I've had the the opportunity to listen to the show and, and I've had a chance to kind of rehearse this in my head and I've kind of wondered, I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to answer this? <laughs> I think when I think of the the early map, it's a lot of things that I realize I dealt with later in life because, you know, you're not really aware of the map at first. And I think a lot of where I came from was a very lower middle class, working class, blue collar background. And, and a lot of that baby boomer, post baby boomer ideology was really ingrained in me. And, you know, before you were aware of even the concept of ideology, this is something that seems to function without us even knowing, like, you know, those, all those beliefs, all those feelings, all those things are kind of naturalized. So we grew up in a very hardworking father, stay at home mom, but, you know, different, I guess my story being different is, you know, my mom was Korean immigrant, you know, didn't speak much English. And so we grew up in a LA suburb that was predominantly white. So I grew up in a feeling of otherness, but not really having a language or any idea of how to deal with it. So a little bit of trying to live like this kind of version of the hardworking middle-class blue collar life. And when I grew up a little bit later, I realized I'm like, wow, like there were so many things that my parents never even addressed with me. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that they kind of had this belief in that if you're a good, hardworking citizen, Mm -hmm. you live this life, you work hard, you live in a nice school district, I don't have to worry about where I'm sending my kids to school, what they're learning. It's going to be, you know, good. It's all going to work out. If they just, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just have to kind of work hard, pay our taxes and go to church on Sunday. (laughs) And, um, And that's pretty much what we did. And uh, what was strange for me is that because my uh, family was so working class, and, I, and, and again, I didn't realize these things till later. I realized like, until I went to college and finished college, 
I was not only the first one in my family, other than one aunt and uncle, to go to college and finish college, but I was like be all cousins, everything. Like it was, you know, no one went to college. Not that that is a sign of anything, but I think it shows that there was. Once I went through that process, there was a bit of a disjuncture that I never, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever come back from. Um, but uh, yeah, so that early life was really uh, steeped in this kind of mentality and, and it has its pluses and minuses. And growing up in the suburbs of LA, it really didn't feel cut off from culture because if you know anything about LA, it's just a sprawling city. And so even if you're 35 miles outside of the city, it's really not that much different. Although people, Angelinos and people from, you know, that grew up in Orange County would maybe argue that point. But in all fairness, I didn't have to suffer in the way that there was the cool record store. Mm. He was able to go to the local music store and take guitar lessons. And the guy was, you know, he looked like he was in Sonic Youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is like in 1987, you know, and he was in an alternative band and was into like all kinds of cool things. You know, and then as soon as I was 16, we were able to drive to Hollywood and see bands. And it wasn't, I didn't feel disconnected from it at all. Um, so that was like the good parts about it. And I think that kind of that early phase of my life was really based upon, I didn't really have any other aspirations other than to do music. Mm. Okay, I was going to ask you this. Yeah. Yeah, because my parents didn't, they weren't like, hey, you need to study hard and you need to get into a college and you're going to take these SAT prep classes. There was none of that. It was basically, if you're a good kid and stay out of trouble, we won't bother you. And I really was because I felt like, okay, I need to be good. My parents work really hard. I don't want to make them suffer. And, you know, they treated me generally, you know, really well. And, you know, they paid for guitar lessons and all these things that I was able to do. And so my mind was just very much focused on like, okay, uh, I want to be a musician. And the only college catalog that I requested was for, um, you know, in Hollywood, there's this place called Musicians Institute. And then they had an institute called GIT, Guitar Institute of Technology. And it's where all like the 80s kind of metal guys, you could just learn to shred. (laughs) So I remember sitting in high school classes and I just look at that catalog oh, and it was wow. cr- incredibly expensive. And so I was never able to go, you right. know, um, sad, <laughs> sadly, but that was kind of the only thing I did. And so after I graduated high school, two things happened. I joined a band mm-hmm. that was with, you know, I was 18 and everybody in the band seemed so much older to me, but they were like 26, 27. Is this the Violet Burning band? Yeah, the Violet Burning. Okay, yeah, well, can yeah, I, yeah, before yeah, you so. go any further, I just have to ask you, Jeff, who came up with the brilliant band name? Because like, well done, the Violet Burning. I mean, like I can feel that. <laughs> well, that was Michael, the lead singer. So and, good. And so I joined that band and immediate, it was great because immediately, like I graduated high school in June and by that fall I was playing clubs in Hollywood and so it was great you know and I was playing with musicians who are much more seasoned than me so it was really a blessing in that way but then on the side I was like well I should go to at least community college or something like that and so (laughs) I I signed up at the local yeah the local community college and um all I did was hang out. <laughs> there was like a big lawn and there was just, you know, it was like the alternative revolution. It right. was all, there was this explosion of of music and culture. So it was 1992, the fall of 1992. And so it was really at the, the high point of that. And 
I would just hang out with other people. We just talk about music and talk about going to show. And I totally flunked out. <laughs> just, to- to- just totally flunked out. Didn't learn a thing. But what was great about it was that I met people who were super deeply passionate mm-hmm. about music. And through that, I was able to start learning about other things that I didn't really have a grasp of, like other artists, musicians, writers, literary ideas, you know, cinematic ideas, because they'd be like, oh, you like this and, you know, that band, they're really into so-and-so. If we, or if you like Sonic Youth, you know, that's like a whole world of mm-hmm. art and ideas. So it was really, you know, a learning experience, but not not reflected upon my report cards, that's for sure. And isn't that <laughs> just like the way of the artist, though? You know, this illustrates a form of unknowing, doesn't it? That like, we have an idea about intelligence and education and knowledge that is really one-dimensional. And there's so many different ways and pathways to that kind of experience and wisdom and to be animated by the passion of like using the bands and the music you were into to actually like get into philosophy and, you know, worldview Mm -hmm. and like kind of getting into the history of all of that through the passion of your music. And I relate to that too, having an alternative approach to education in my own life. Yeah, no, for sure. And I really appreciate it now, mm-hmm. you know, but at the time of, you know, being young, you don't know how to negotiate these things and you're kind of just put into a system. And, right. and if you haven't been you know, taught the right way to go through it, you know, you get spit out fairly quickly. And um, yeah, college didn't go so well for me at that point, which is great because through hindsight, we realized I wasn't ready for it. It wasn't the right time. And and so the best thing that could have happened to me was to get spit out. And so I just really put all my effort into music, which was great. And so that band, The Violet Burning, it was a great experience for me because that band in particular, we had a very quick rise and we started playing and, you know, they had already been doing their thing for three or four years. And so it kind of worked out some of the things. So I got to join like, while they're like very focused and knew what they wanted to do. And so I joined the band, we went and did a demo, you know, and then you would have your demo cassette, you know, <laughs> you can't yeah. even get CDs oh, yes. made. I remember, I remember cassettes. Really? I, I, I miss that hiss. That, yeah. There's nothing like the hiss of a cassette. You know what I mean? Just the... <laughs> yeah. yeah. really so comforting good. about it. I mean, I guess CDs existed, but you couldn't if you were like a local artist, you couldn't get them made unless you were like loaded pro. And yeah. so everybody still had demo tapes, right, right, you know, right. demo tapes. So we did a tape, started playing and um, it was great. And we got a lot of label attention very quickly. Essentially, I remember we did a, a showcase for a, a really big label and the president came down and the A&R person and they were like, oh, we want to sign. We, we, we absolutely want to sign you. Wow. So I'm like, great. I'm 18. I thought we'd made it. We didn't have a real manager. We had more of like kind of a friend who was managing the van. And so they flew our friend out to New York to their offices. And whatever happened there, they completely they botched, uh, it? botched the deal. No. And so then we, <laughs> we we were thrown back in. And, and, it, and for whatever reason, like after that happened, no one wanted to touch us. Oh, no. Yeah, no, we couldn't get arrested in L.A. And so oh. we ended up, long story short, we ended up taking like a Japanese record deal because – this label over there was like, hey, we're trying to, you know, maybe we should start signing alternative bands from the U.S. And um, and that went all right, but it never really went anywhere. And so after maybe a year or two of doing that, I kind of 
hit the end of that period of my life. And I was like, okay, I got to make a change. And so that kind of ends that period. Yeah. And it's, I think for listeners who may not be as familiar with the music industry as you or I are, is that the recognition that what you're describing is like a bygone era of where record labels would, you know, pick up these demos and there were these, it was still very much the getting signed game was still very much afoot, which has radically shifted. It was huge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what's funny about it is, and this is like not, you know, I think this will give us some perspective on this. So when we got the Japanese record deal, we got Mm $50,000 to make a record, which was at the time considered nothing. But you know, in this day and age, if you or I got $50,000 to go into, so you'd be like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with all this money? I'd basically make 10 records with that money. (laughs) I know, right? I know for the, you know, on what you realize, what you can do now. But then that was considered like, wow, like that's it. Like that was really low. You know, (laughs) like you're barely, barely get to make like a, a, like a, a quote unquote, like a real album. I was like, wow, I should really go back to school. And so then I went back to school and I went back a much different person. Mm. And I decided like, okay, I got to take this seriously. I went and met with the counselor. I just started doing my GE and what what ended up happening through a series of events, um, I ended up in a Shakespeare class. It just blew my mind. And once I realized like it didn't feel like school anymore. And once it was like, oh my God, like this is so fascinating, this literary world. And I just wanted more and more, just like with guitar and music, it didn't feel like, oh, I need to do this. Yeah. But as an obligation, it was a passion. And then I just really pursued that. Then I transferred to a, the four-year university and got my BA. And then I knew I wanted to, before I finished that, I was like, okay, I really want to go and do graduate work. You know, I ended up getting into UCLA mm. and I did, you know, like six, seven years of graduate work there and only left because I got the offer to join the Smashing Pumpkins, but that was really my- Just a small thing on the side, just like a small side gig moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird because I had left that like kind of desire- Had you? Really on the back burner. Mm-hmm. I, I, re- I don't even say it was on the back burner. I, I had no aspirations at all to be a professional musician any longer. It's weird to me how that happens, that almost as if through the course of our lives, we go through these phases where we create dichotomies and dualities where it's like, oh, no, 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 that's what I was doing before. So I'm not doing that now. Or no, 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 I used to be religious before. So like now I'm totally against anything that reminds me of it now, you know? And it's only through the living that over time, these things get brought together almost like in harmony and like a harmonic wholeness where we can orbit in a fluid way and hold all these different parts of ourselves together harmonically and in tension as opposed to being like, oh no, I was doing music. Now I'm an academic. Now I'm academic, Jeff. <laughs> and I've done things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you have to be, if you're in the humanities, there's no spirituality. Everything's very materialist, secular, right. Yes, I completely agree Mm -hmm. that we kind of experience our lives, especially very internally, like kind of more holistically, where Mm -hmm. the spiritual life feeds the artistic life, films, you know, feed songs, poetry is part of our music, music feeds into the way we read a book, how we go to the grocery store. Yeah, it's all one thing, one unfolding melody. Yeah, yeah. And it's when you have to go 
into the um, out into the world where you you get into these kind of separate spheres, mm. and you know, and that's a question that I would get asked all the time. Now you're in this big rock band. How different is it from being an academic? Mm-hmm. Like everybody wants to separate it completely. Yeah, I guess to a certain degree, like teaching a literature class or writing a paper or researching is different than playing on stage, but my reasons for being interested in those things in the first place are entirely the same. Mm. You know, I mean, like the, it's because we're interested in ideas. Mm-hmm. We're interested in expression. We're interested in trying to find ways, you know, through s- symbolic representation, whether narrative or sound or whatever, to represent our experience mm. or discuss our experience, right? So it's really not that different to me, but you know, the rest of the world very much sees it that way. And I've personally dealt with that schism, Mm -hmm. you know, and those fragmentations and trying to find ways to kind of stitch it back together again. Right. Well, do you find, Jeff, that it has something to do with the identification process where, as you know, the show is called Unknowing. One of the aspects or practices of unknowing, at least in my life, is creating just enough distance between myself and the stories I create about myself to stay fluid mm-hmm. and flexible and playful. And it's very easy to say, you know, I'm Brie, I'm a podcaster. I'm Brie, I'm a musician. And yet where I feel maybe the creative edges of my own horizon calling me is toward, I'm all these things and I am none of them. You know, it's the both andness that I think really calls to me. And did you feel that? kind of the pull toward identifying as I was Jeff the musician, now I am Jeff the academic, while you were there in in the moment? Or did you feel like that was something that was being asked of you, like people were demanding that of you? Oh, no, I felt it internally. Okay, I yeah. think the first time around, I was a struggling musician. So then to go to UCLA and be on a fellowship and working with some of these top scholars, it felt like an upgrade. So I was like, well, this is okay. You felt important. Yeah, like this boosted my ego. Yeah. This boosted the sense of myself. And then when leaving that, I felt like, wow, wow, I'm going to have this really great opportunity. This is different. But my ego had grown to such a degree, you know, and the fetishization of academia really had grown on me to where I, once I was leaving that, I felt like, like when I had to give up my UCLA email address, it was really <laughs> painful for me because that was a dark night of the soul for you moment, right? <laughs> I had that institutional backing. Yeah. And you know, you start thinking like, well, what if people don't think I'm intelligent anymore right. because I was in this doctorate program and you're so smart and you're this and you get, you know, and you're getting to work with all these great people and be around all these blah 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 blah. So that's that was really difficult for me. And so yes, I think I could intellectualize like, well, you're not that person. I could understand what sure. you just said about creating space and creating distance and knowing that I'm not that person, that it's just a, an identity that I assume from time to time. But it doesn't mean it feels right or it feels natural or you feel okay with it, <laughs> even though, you know, in a lot, you know, we can under, intellectually understand many things, but it's hard to actually be it. The practice of the thing is a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'll tell you, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm giggling inside because like I'm currently 
downstairs is the area of my house originally called my study, which is where I like I had a desk and my computer was set up and I had my great mm-hmm. cloud of witnesses of these like, you know, yeah. mystical theological academic books behind me. And just recently a friend of mine challenged me and was like, hey, so like, do you need those to be there now? Because you could actually use a space for like, you know, working on your painting. And so I've been taking on this project of moving all these books upstairs. <laughs> I have to tell you, Jeff, I'm like, I'm going through it. There's totally some part of my ego that was hanging on for dear life of like, no, I'm Brie. I have these mystical books behind me is now slowly dying as they disappear. And I'm like, wait, who am I if I'm not surrounded by mystical books? <laughs> oh, no, I I totally get it. You know, after because, um, you know, I have a, a similar experience with my books in that, you know, I lived here in L.A. and then through a whole series of experience. I was like, I got to get out of here. Mm. You know, I've lived in LA my whole life. I need to just go somewhere else. And and Billy Corgan was so sweet, you know, at the time this was like around, you know, my mom had just died the year before, mm. you know, and um, so that was like a big experience for me. And, you know, he said, well, you know, this was like 2012. He said, why don't you come? Um, you can live with me for a while, see if you like Chicago. And I had, of course, been going there a lot to work and record with the band and rehearse. So, you know, it wasn't like I'd never been there. Put your stuff in storage, you know, and live with me. Yeah. Come try out a new place. Yeah. And, you know, his house was big enough to... It could accommodate <laughs> another human. Had, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. He had a lot a lot of room, you know, so I actually didn't really see him that much that we'd see each other in the morning in the kitchen, basically. <laughs> And that band practice. But it was really great because it really gave me a chance to kind of like, okay, I'm going to try to let go. And as you probably know, you think that by going somewhere else, okay, now I'm free from all these things. And it, it you know, just follows doesn't you. really work that way. Right. But I finally did say, okay, I'm going to move there. And I got my own, you know, ended up getting my own place and all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, I had all my books. Uh-oh. And I purposely was like all these kind of, books that dealt with like Asian American studies and Asian American literary history and post-colonial studies and all these kind of stuff. They're staying in the box, staying in storage because I got to let go of that person. Right. Again, you know, you, you try to do the, you know, it, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard, you know, because that relationship was so ingrained with me. Like those books represented so much. Yeah. yeah. And the practice of detaching from those stories. It's interesting because it's almost like we do it in a mental way first and then it's in the physical way the embodied way of detaching that we actually experience that like initial kind of anxiety of like wait wait who am I now so I want to ask you though speaking of shifting identities about this moment when you joined the Smashing Pumpkins because how did that happen and what was that transition I mean you already kind of touched on it a little bit about leaving behind academia that must have been difficult Mm -hmm. but it also wasn't to go be a janitor. <laughs> I mean, it was no, like, it no. was a tremendous opportunity. So describe how that came about and what was at play in stepping into that role? Well, one of my former bandmates, he was the very first person I knew that was on the internet. You know, Damn. He was like, hey, there's a thing on the internet. And so he, <laughs> so at the time at this period, you know, it was AOL Instant Messenger. So he had hundreds of friends on AOL Instant Messenger. This is like 2007. And he said, hey, one of my friends works at this management company. He told me Smashing Pumpkins are getting back together, but James isn't coming back and Darcy is not coming back. So they're looking for a bass player and guitar player. And they're here in L.A. recording. He's like, I really think you should do this. And for some reason, I said, you know what? 
why not? Why not? Yeah. You know, like I said, I give. I, I wasn't trying to be a professional musician at all. Huh. It's one of those weird instances, and I don't say this to be like egotistical at all. I just knew I was going to get it. Wow. Or I knew. I didn't know, but I just knew. I really had a chance to get it. And do you think it had something to do with the fact that you were, because it wasn't like you, all of your ego eggs weren't in the basket of I'm a musician. Was there something about that spaciousness that it created that maybe allowed you to feel a different sort of confidence because you had nothing to lose? Yeah, but I just felt like I was the right artistic fit okay, or something like that. I felt like, no, I understand this music, like this music, because I was a big fan of the band. And and so I felt like, no, like this is totally me. And to connect with what you were saying, I think now in hindsight and looking at it, I think they really liked the fact that I wasn't a musician in LA that was trying to get a gig. Got it. Yeah. Like I think they were actually very weary and leery of those types of people because they'll say they like you. Oh, I'm a huge fan of the band, huge fan of the band. You know I mean? Because they just, they want a paying gig. They're out here. They moved from wherever they moved to, to, to make it in the industry. That's a good opportunity. Mm. I wasn't that person. Lip service, right. Yeah. I was someone who had my own trajectory of doing what I was doing. And I think they ultimately really, that was a very big part of it. Yeah. I just really went for it. Mm. And it wasn't a situation where there was just one audition. It was months you know, it was, they were, I think it was like a lunch, Billy and Jimmy. It's and a courtship. I, like you guys dated each other basically. Yeah. And they were so cool because they were recording at a studio that was actually right by UCLA in, in West LA, um, the village, oh, you know, where like yeah. Fleetwood Mac did rumors and mm-hmm. all that, you know, the, yeah. so it's like very famous. And they were so cool. They were like, Hey, stop by, hang out as much as you want. We want you to see what it's really like, what we do. And, and they were recording, at the time, they were recording the Zeitgeist album, and Roy Thomas Baker, who did all the Cars, Queen, mm-hmm. Bohemian Raps, you know, was the, was the engineer and producer. And so it was like a crazy experience for me. I was like, oh, my God. This no is, big deal. This is nuts. Where are you going after <laughs> yeah. class, Jeff? What are you doing this afternoon? Uh. Exactly, exactly. I couldn't really tell people, right. you know. And, and, um, and, you know, and the funny thing is once I finally got the gig, and I had to tell my advisors at UCLA, like, hey, I'm uh, going to leave the program. I'm joining a rock. They were like, like, what are you talking about? We didn't even know you were a musician. <laughs> like, Because like, I didn't – I really – like tried to leave that person behind for a long time mm. where when I was there, I, you know, I even dressed different. I was like, I'm going to wear like my academic. <laughs> the only thing I can relate to in this is that when I, when I, when I got really into mysticism and contemplation and was working at the center for action contemplation, I left yeah. like musician artist. I don't know what happened to her. She like disappeared. Yeah. I went through a whole, what I like to describe as like a contemplative frumpy phase where it was like, I just like, I like intentionally tried to look like, like more like I didn't care about such material things as like color coordination and you know, like well just, yeah because you don't want to be like hey I'm calling attention to myself right right, right. it would be just it's it, ego. yeah that, it'd be that's, so that's egoic like your, to actually like yeah, you know care yeah, about yeah. things like appearance <laughs> you know I think yeah, it's quite yeah. a shock to a lot of people who are a part of that world that knew me then to suddenly be like, who's this flamboyant Enneagram for artist, musician, painting human? Like, wh- who, where did she come from? <laughs> but it was always there. It's just that it's interesting how we create these schisms in ourselves. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I wrote this actually 
I don't know, about a year ago, I was talking about various things with Billy one day and I wrote him this long email about kind of my experiences of being in the band and, you know, and coming to these realizations that I really had no idea what I was getting into. I had been on the fringes of the music industry and now I was kind of bypassed and was at this band that already was big and had a legacy and you're dealing with managers and accountants and, and lawyers and, you know, it's, it's a vicious business. It's hard. It, it, it's really hard. And so I had no idea what I was getting into and it really was hard for me mm. after a while because it was very confusing and to kind of put it back into, you know, the language of the maps that we were dealing with and, and to use some of Richard Rohr's, you know, language of kind of order, disorder, reorder. Right. I think what you realize is it wasn't like I would, you know, after, okay, at 19, I left that map and started, you know, using a new map. And then it's like these maps, like you take a little bit of this, some things continue, some things don't, and then things start overlaying out each That's other. Right. And it gets even more confusing because mm. you're like, now I'm in my forties, this is supposed to be all worked out. And why doesn't it feel great? Or why do I feel? Wait, you haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and and so I realized I had been carrying like certain cycles of like mental issues and stuff for like a 20 year cycle mm. of very mm. difficult things. And throughout graduate school, I had gone to like you know, that's on campus, like psychological services. Sure, yeah. But, but it was like a quick fix. So you like getting through like a, if you're having like a really big problem or something that needs like some immediate addressing, but not really dealing with long-term. So about a year and a half ago, I started, I was like, okay, I need to kind of start working through mm -hmm. this in a, in a more systematic way. And um, one of the things that really is, has caused me to suffer greatly in life is trying to reconcile all these different mm -hmm. versions of kind of who I was, yeah. like, why did I have to leave that behind to gain this? Why did I feel that sense of loss? Why, mm. like, I'm still interested in these things. How can I, what's the framework that I can try and put this together? Mm. Because I really am not happy with who I am. You know, and, and a lot of that too, and we haven't really discussed that, was has been kind of more the kind of the spiritual journey too that has been with me throughout my life. And God bless my parents, you know, they never forced anything mm. too hard. They never said, you must do this. Like, I know your background, <laughs> you kind of grew up in a much different type of there was a, there environment. Was, it, was, it was, you know, either you do this or you go to hell. I mean, and it was just, <laughs> it was just that. Yeah, no. But, you know, I was actually the one who got my, you know, my mom came from Korea in 1966. And, you know, even though now Christianity is more um, prevalent there, and it's especially highly prevalent in the Korean American community, for her, it, it wasn't. You know, my father, like I said, he grew up, you know, he graduated high school in 1960. So you could imagine he grew up in the 1950s, Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, that whole <laughs> leave it to beaver kind of world. Yeah. And so did his parents go to church on Sunday? Yeah, they did, but they weren't that serious about it. Right. I don't want to say like they, but it was just what you did. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so by the time I was five or six, my family did not go to church on Sunday. One day, just as a kid, I asked, how come we don't, why don't we go to church? Mm -hmm. And he felt like all this guilt, like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> oh, no. So he, he literally <laughs> looked up churches in the yellow pages. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> he's like, I don't even know where to go. <laughs> and so he found you know, a, a local Baptist church, actually. 
And so we started going to a Baptist church. And and by the time I finished high school, you know, I had many friends and musicians that were in Christian bands and, you know, that I grew up around. So I was very, very, very extremely familiar with that culture. And now as an older person, I'm not like, I don't hate on it. But I, at the same time, I could never be part of it. But at the same time, that feels very alone because sometimes like community is so important to like a spiritual journey, even though you end up tending to have realizations on your own without having mm. community or sangha or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, so you kind of fell through a map in a way because you were yeah you were suddenly left without that culture of belonging, but you were still on your spiritual journey, which can be very lonely. Yeah. And then of course, when I went to graduate school, that was out the door completely because you could never... The intellectual snobbery of it. Yeah. It was like, yeah, no. Yeah. Although... At the, you know, at said the Center for Jewish Studies, a lot of these postmodern thinkers like Jacques Derrida and Alain Badu and all these kind of people that come from that post-structuralist, you know, they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their ideas come from Jewish mysticism, right. you know, and so they were doing that kind of work, but it didn't really cross over into the non-Judaic right, like, academic, world, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, even though there's now, you know, of course, now I know there's quite a few, you know, there's the whole body of Christian mysticism that is ends up kind of in a very similar right. place, at least in terms of my understanding about it. So is that your introduction to mystical thinking or the mystical streams of religious thought? No, no, not okay. at all. Not at all. I think more like what happened is I was in the midst of graduate work, doing a lot of work in ethnic studies, doing... Asian American literary research, African American, Caribbean, you know, French, North African. And so I was very much like immersed in this world, but I still felt like I'm lacking like this other dimension. In my so then it was more of like a trip down what would be, you know, the esoteric or new age okay, type of, yeah. of thinking, you know, because I'm like, well, I want something, but I, I mean, you can't walk into the humanities department like, hey, I'm a Christian. Or <laughs> it just, you know, and, and I don't even know if I would want to, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Even though, but as you know, the first tradition that you learn is, is kind of embedded. Yeah, it's like your native tongue. Yeah, it's hard to let go of that symbolic system because mm-hmm. it's your way of kind of understanding things. Even if you have to try to reject it somehow, mm-hmm. it's like you're rejecting these narrative points that are already within kind of your psyche and your mind. <laughs> so, you know, you're trying to go over there and you're basically trying to superimpose some of these ideas and go like, well, I kind of understand this or I get this. Or, I can trade this for that, <laughs> this word for that word. Yeah, <laughs> then you make your trip through Buddhist philosophy and thinking and – um I started going like, well, maybe I can revisit some of my early roots too and Mm -hmm. go back and read someone like C.S. Lewis again and see if I can find anything in there Mm -hmm. that resonates with me. And then people would recommend someone like a little more sophisticated, like I want to say sophisticated, but more modern, Mm -hmm. you know, like N.T. Wright or something like that. So I'm kind of reading his work and going like, well, it's still attached Uh to this. It's trying to reform this kind of institutional thing that is extremely problematic. You know, and I don't feel attached to the institution. So a lot of these arguments are trying to make say, hey, hey, we're not so bad, or we could be better, or we need to be better. So then somewhere, you know, Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ, came up, and then that kind of opened up this, you know, and then of course now I'm talking to you and, you know, because of the podcast and because, you know, I started listening to the podcast and I've listened to it a bunch of times. But what's been great about it for me is 
this tradition in its best form, to me anyway, is that it doesn't detract from me all the work that I did before. So even all the work in critical theory and reading, you know, because I was a big theory person in grad. I was like, you know, that was really my interest. So um, structuralism, post-structuralism, Marxism, psychoanalysis. You know, I was, I was, you know, I still am very much into reading those kind of people. And so now I feel like, well, this is a spiritual tradition that is strong enough and loose enough to work within mm-hmm. all these other thought systems. And that's not something that pops up every day. So that's been like a, a very um, interesting um, revelation for me in terms of like my thinking. It's interesting that you described it as like it's structured enough but loose enough because especially on this season, I think I've been hovering around the relationship between structure and form and fluidity and play. And it's almost like it's not like the maps disappear, but they kind of stack up on themselves and they create something new or in our own movement toward a new terrain something else comes forward from the map itself. So there's an exchange, an interplay that happens between structure and freedom and fluidity. And I kind of want to ask you about that because it seems like a lot of the religious traditions, at least in this moment, as well as the full stop that we've experienced in society through the pandemic, is causing Mm -hmm. us to reevaluate and rethink what it is that we want to prioritize in life or what really matters. Like one of the things that I say often, Jeff, is what's the difference between the container of an institution and the contents? And the reason I think it's important to differentiate those two is because the container may need to crack and shift. That ship may need to go down, but some of the wood could still be used (laughs) to create Mm -hmm. something new. And so I want to ask you about non-possessiveness Because I think it's related here with this concept of like being able to let go of one identity as another one is able to emerge is in many ways a metaphor for the shifting institutions into what may yet emerge in the spiritual landscape or even in the music industry, right? Because you have obviously lived in a time period where the music industry Uh has completely shifted and changed. So what do you see as the relationship between being non-possessive, non-attached, as crucial to being able to navigate these times of flux, whether it be in you know the industry, in jobs, pandemic, or bigger mm-hmm. spiritual shifts? Um, well, I'll answer what I think is the easier question first, which is as, as far as the music industry, you know, and my experience of it as an artist working within it is that if you have any attachment, you suffer greatly because, you know, you can sit there and criticize what it is now and go, it used to be like this. Or, you know, we, we used to get budgets. We used to get, prom- there were promotional departments. There were people that helped. We used to get paid, Jeff. Yeah, we used, we to, used get to get paid. <laughs> yeah. And you have to let it go because if you don't let it go, you're dealing with resentment, right. anger, and, you know, ultimately fear, fear of that whatever's up ahead isn't going to be abundant enough, let's say, to have a space for you. I find that I just have to let go of that because I find that if my worries tend to be that, then I'm not worried about what I'm trying to express. When there were less places or avenues to have your music come out, like if you didn't get a major label record deal, it was hard to even put out music that anybody would hear. And then 
Obviously, there were things like radio and MTV and getting in Rolling Stone or Spin or any of these kind of big publications. You know, it meant a lot, but there's actually very little space for that. And so then the music, you know, what kind of got promoted tended to get very homogenized really quickly. And we saw that with like in the 80s, there was like all these hard rock heavy metal bands and then the clones of those bands and because it kept on like replicating themselves very fast. And then an alternative happened very quickly too, to where you get BC level versions of the original bands right. and, and whatnot. Um, now I think all that's gone and there's a lot of space for everybody. I think there's, that's actually a really positive thing, Yeah, you know, because it's really just about how good you are and getting an audience to rally behind. Like, wow, we really like what Brie does. Like she does her, the version of her the best. I have like a good solid 15 people that really dig what I'm doing right now. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, but, and so for me, what I struggle with artistically to this day is, you know, we're all coming up with, you know, I'm, going to be 48 years old, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to, what am I going to do? Like there's, am I going to record with all in the box? Am I going to go to a regular studio? We're using real drums, fake drums. I mean, all these, there's like this endless line of questions, but I realize, like really what's most important about like for me, like success then is, is can I let go of the fear? Can I let go of worrying about the commercial part? And first and foremost, be myself. Because I there's things that I like, but I'm like afraid. I'm like, oh, but people are gonna make fun of me if I do this, or what if people don't like, you know, that it's too distorted or it's too clean or it's yeah. too this or or whatever, you know. You, but I find that I'm like the most successful, and then I mean like happy, mm-hmm. not monetary, Fulfilled. you know, when when yeah, when I feel like, wow, I'm just allowed to express myself. And mm-hmm. that, and that is something that's ever evolving, mm-hmm. unfolding through time with shifts, changes, influence from things internally, influence from things outside, things, you know, where we read, things we see, things we feel. It's always really quite magical when sometimes you sit there and you think like, I can't believe that that comes out of me. Mm, yeah. I don't know how to explain that, you know, right? Isn't that it? Yeah, that you're channeling something that's it's bigger than you and yet it's vibrating through the instrument of you. But that melody is mm-hmm. ancient and Yeah. So in a way I feel like what you're saying Jeff is that the way around collapsing into these I'm either this or this the way toward wholeness, at least as you're describing it, is this radical courage to just be fully present to yourself, to what is, and let that flow happen in the moment without getting analytical maybe or criticizing yourself in your head or getting too worried about the outcome. Contemporary psychology calls it the internal critic or this kind of things, but it's been called many things over the years. But that's joy. That's the meditative moment too. And like I said, I think it's good because it, it also, like you know, what, it's something that's funny that people always say is, is they're like, wow, your music is so dark. And I don't <laughs> ever hear it that way. I don't ever hear like, wow, like you kind of write like dark, it's like dark, but pretty kind of thing. And I guess that is kind of, you know, that's just what I, I don't know. I don't even say like, that's just how I hear things. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't know where they come from always. Yeah, it's an interesting experiment to, 
Like I'm thinking about audience members listening to this and I'm wondering how the translation of this practice that you're laying out of radical presence and non-judgment, non-attachment. I mean, these are spiritual principles, but the way that you're framing it, even in the context of the music industry, makes it really concrete and relatable. At least I think for people who are like, okay, we can't go back to what was before. There is a lot about life that has shifted, you know, a lot about how we do work that has shifted. Mm -hmm. And instead of going to this place of resentment toward what is, if we can live in a state of presence and flow with it, then we're freed from the resentment of it, if that makes sense. It's like we're freed to find the playful creativity and the joy of it and the maybe the potential of it as well. Yeah, and I, I kind of to cycle back on something that we talked about earlier, you know, when we think about things like attachments, you know, we talked about like, wow, what if we had $50,000 to make? And you're like, I could make 10 albums, right? <laughs> Why is that? That's because there's been a radical transformation of technology, recording technology, right. the dissemination of music. Yes, we don't get paid anymore, but you couldn't even walk into a studio without spending. You would have went through your $50,000 in three days and you know, may, and maybe had a song. And then even if you did record it, how would you get them pressed up? How would you get them into a store? You'd be selling them out the, tr the trunk of your car. <laughs> you know, so now we have access to these different ways of getting our music out. Now, of course, it's very difficult to get your music promoted sure. and to yeah. get seen and and now to get quote unquote playlisted, right? <laughs> you know, because we've got to get our music because so people That's can, the thing now. That's that's bigger than yeah, getting that's, signed that's now is getting thing. on the right playlist on Spotify. It yeah. is. Yep. And there's always these kind of gatekeepers, right? right? Whether they're spiritual gatekeepers business gatekeepers. And those can be very, very, and, and believe me, I have that, the things like that really cause me to spiral. Yeah, me too. Because you're like, hey, I'm working so hard. I'm being authentic. I'm doing this. I'm doing all the right things. And yet this person can be like, I don't like it. Or, you know, I don't like the picture. I don't like what, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And yeah. But if you worry about that, it's toxic. It's really toxic. And so that's where, you know, like for me, like I have to have faith in that. Why am I suffering? What recognition am I looking for? What is mm -hmm. it about my aid that goes like, well, I have to be recognized. You know, obviously sometimes we have very practical concerns like, I got to keep the lights on like here. Paying the bills. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. or, you know what I mean? But, but you right. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, our, Beyond that. Our egos can get damaged very quickly and very easy. And, you know, I think you and I both know there's really no way of transcending that completely. Right. Like to where I would say like, oh, I don't care. I don't care if people, I, I mean, perhaps I wish that I could say that, but of course I want people to. Would you be an artist yeah. though? I mean, like, would you be human? Yeah. And that's the thing is that yeah. we do that sensitivity. Yes, it can go too far. I can almost like hear Richard being like, well, you know, it's like, yeah, it can go too far, Richard. It can. Yeah. I, okay, fine. I, but uh, he'd be like, I don't like this rock music. Anymore. Yeah, no, he would. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. Music's not his thing. <laughs> but like at the same time, it's that very sensitivity that makes us capable of transmuting a sentiment of feeling and experience into music, into art. And Maybe this is, and tell me if I'm getting this right, but to me, the, what you're saying is 
you can look at all this change and be angry about it and frustrated, but there's another sight. Mm -hmm. There's another way to see this and a way that is kind of unknowing the negativity and is remembering or being membered to a joyful possibility and creativity. And choosing to see it that way requires a little bit of internal work, but what a different way to live. It is. It is. And I think like you have to look at what the possibilities might be and just know that we can't, and we don't have really the control on that large scale level. My experience mm-hmm. too, of being in the music industry, we've met a lot of artists, you know, and, and, and some extremely successful ones, they never get over that sensitivity mm-hmm. of like, wow, I'm releasing this mm-hmm. and, you know, how does it feel or to be told by a booking agent that you're not worth what you think you're worth or, you know, told by a manager that you're not as great as you think you are, or it's, you know, and, and, and like I said, yeah. that happens to even the most successful of people. And I think that that's why you often see there's so much kind of personal dysfunctionality and whether it's mm-hmm. substance abuse or these kind of things, because it's, it's painful. It's really painful. And if you don't have a way to, kind of live that and dissipate that pain, it can be very, very difficult life. Jeff, what's your practice? What keeps you in an honest relationship toward that suffering, you know, or even the attachment to it, to praise or lack of praise, you know, to recognition or lack of recognition, to acceptance or rejection? Like what helps you, like, do you have a a daily practice that you do that helps you just like hold to the hope of being an artist? (laughs) I do. Um, And it changes over time. Like, I'll just kind of go back in time a little bit about a year or so ago, a a friend of mine from UCLA days, she left and went to Myanmar and lived in a monastery, you know, went to study at a monastery, a Buddhist monastery in Myanmar for like two or three years. And then she kind of popped back up and was like, hey, I'm back in the US and I'm working at a a meditation center in Joshua Tree. And this was during the height of the pandemic. And so I'm doing morning sits. That sounds nice. Yeah, doing morning sits yeah. online. And so I started doing these morning sits and they were 45 minutes, you know, which is mm-hmm. a long time for me. Damn. <laughs> and it was hard, very hard. Yeah. Well, for most yeah. people, that's that's a long sit. Yeah. And so I, I did that very devoutly for a year or so. Um, and then it was great because they had the morning sit, which was silent. You know, and then at the end, um, Mel, she would do like a five-minute talk, and it was great. Mm-hmm. And then on Saturdays, there was a, a BIPOC, you know, sangha. And so that was really great for me to be around and exposed to a community of so many trans, queer, people of color that were still dedicated to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. It, w- it was really powerful for me, and it really grounded me in, into it kind of encountering on a daily way this kind of otherness. You know, that, that uh, mm, types of people mm-hmm. and their struggles that, you know, to sit there and people would mm. share different struggles they're going through. And it's so powerful for me to be in a way that wasn't tied to like this kind of, especially U.S. centric, evangelical, Western Christianity yep. and go like, wow, like, yeah. you know, there's other ways to discuss these things, you know, and to see that in some ways, in the best possible ways, there's a lot of similarities. And, um, right. but that practice was really good. And then because of my schedule changing, I couldn't always do this sit. And so then it transformed to where I wake up and, and I, and, 
and for me, because I really need to fill my mind with things. So I usually do some type of mm. like reading first thing in the morning. And while we wake I make after after make a cup of coffee, yeah, make a cup of coffee and then I sit. I want to ask you about how you experience practice in music now and in life because one of the things that I'm very passionate about is that we don't relegate spiritual practice to just what we do, you know, on the cushion or in our study. But like actually like how do you feel this alive? in the non-possessiveness of how you create in music or in relationship? Like, can you help listeners feel into how that plays itself out in the midst of your real life? Something that I strive for on a daily basis is integration. How can I integrate this spiritual practice in not only just music, but everything I do, right? From walking the dog to, and specifically to music, especially when I... I'm doing more like technique practicing things. Right. You have to be really present. Yeah. And so trying to get into a similar space, I think especially when you're doing repetitive type of, say, like musical practice, something with playing or the voice, it can become very much like it's like a sport and, and kind of disconnected from the mind a little bit. It just becomes a bodily thing like, oh, wow, look what I can do. You know what I mean? And so it's... To me, I guess what I'm looking for and the reason, like, say, like, I practice something in the first place is that I'm looking for language. Like, to me, if I want to play something, it's because I'm looking for language to speak. So when that voice wants to come out, I'm not limited by what my body can or cannot do. And so it's extremely connected to it is a way to get closer to, say, God, if that what you feel like the spirit is coming out of you while you're playing. I mean... It's poetic, it's metaphoric language. Music is not, you know, it's not a one-to-one relation. It is poetic in its nature. So it's just trying to get more language in that way. And so to me, having that connectedness is extremely important. But then also, I find that my personal health, my my well-being is much better when I engage in the practice every day. So whether it's practicing the guitar, I find that like, wow, like when I allow myself to be present, right? Especially as a songwriter, as a musician, it's not going to be every day, but if you don't show up all the time, just like meditating, right? Like to have that kind of Mm -hmm. unity, say with this kind of higher power, Mm -hmm. but if you don't show up, it's never going to happen. And I feel like with music too and art, it is all interconnected in that way for me. 100%. That's so beautiful, Jeff. I like the way you're describing the discipline of practice as language. It's giving you a way to express yourself. I almost had this image of like the discipline of showing up to practice increases the capacity for resonance in our lives. Like we can receive more, we can express more when we're dedicated to growing the space within us or the circuitry inside of us to be able to handle that voltage, you know? So that's a really profound invitation. So I want to close by asking you what I love to ask most guests, which is what are the growing edges of your unknowing right now? What's calling you to the edges of your own horizon in any field of your multivocality in life? Yeah. You know, for me, because I feel like 
because I've been reading and listening to so much of this. So it's, it's become, you know, as you know, these things start becoming part of your everyday vocabulary. But to say, as I feel like I'm really entering this kind of second half of my life, especially age wise, you know, I'm getting going to be 48. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really worry about sometimes what the hell am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to be rocking out on stage forever. You know, what is it that's going to happen? And so I find that when I try to write my own narrative too quickly, things just don't work out, you know? And so I found that allowing myself to be open and think more in terms of infinite possibility, really. like, But it really goes into, Jeff, just return, be this self that's uniquely you. Because that is like the one great thing about every single one of us, everybody out there, there's no one else like you right? There's no other Brie. There's no other Jeff. There's no, you know, we are. And if you can let that come out, especially for me as artistically, I feel like, wow, I have to have belief at least that that's going to create possibilities for me. You know, because sometimes the language like a manifestation can get people like, wow, like, you know, new car is going to show up in your driveway. Yeah. It gets a little bit like too basic or materialistic yeah (laughs) manifest the car but sometimes Uh things do start appearing in your life and usually Mm -hmm. i'm like well yeah but you practice every day you've worked hard on your instrument for the last like 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 say like 10 years like you've really put in daily prep you know i mean so it's not like these things just appear Mm -hmm. but um i've had enough things happen to me where i'm going like you know what your project right now is to just just see if you can be comfortable being you. And, you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of it is like having this conversation with you right now, Brie, because, you know, a year or two years ago, I wouldn't be this open about who I really am, like spiritually and whatnot. And even this morning, I woke up and was like, are you sure you want to talk about this stuff? But those are the voices, aren't they, Jeff? Like, those are the voices that make a second guess and question. And those are like the fear voices. And it's like you're saying there's another way to live that's choosing to live in this radical acceptance of our unique offering in this world and trusting that that's not only enough, but that it will, it will go in unexpected ways. And kind of where we're at, like globally, historically, the world is radically changing before our eyes right now. I have to think that ultimately, because the way things kind of dialectically move, you know, I have to have a little bit of faith in that that you know, we're going to come out of this at some point and there's going to be a, a little bit brighter future. And so I just want to, I'm just kind of like for myself, I just feel like I just want to kind of work on being a better person, letting go of things like, like the important things for me in the future, letting go of judgment when I walk down the street. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I get like anger. I'm like, I can't believe people litter everywhere in LA. Like, how dare you throw trash on yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I get really angry. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, um, yeah. You know, it's yeah. a very crazy place out here right now. If mm-hmm. you're in, in Los Angeles, there's a lot going on, you know. <laughs> and um, so to me, like those things are that these kind of daily things of going like, let go of that. Mm-hmm. That isn't actually you, mm-hmm. you know. Really, can you try and truly be compassionate? Can you kind of have like this embracing of the other without projecting your version of reality onto that? And so, like I said, What's been very powerful for me and as I kind of move into the present is I found a way that's actually, for me, kind of working where, you know, a lot of this language, a lot of this stuff was stuff that I actually talked 
you know, that I studied in graduate school, dealing with difference, otherness, but also having to find a way that we can have unity too. And um, so that's kind of all the things that really are around my mind right now and uh, is really the most important to me. And, and like I said, I'm very thankful for your presence and for all the work that you've done because I don't, I mean, and that's one of the things that I think that we have to is you don't often realize how your work goes out and it touches people, you know, mm, you know, yeah. and you don't realize like, like, wow, like, you know, there are people that are spending hours listening to your wisdom, to the things, to all the work that you've done, to all those books that you're now moving upstairs, you know, but- <laughs> That work has, tr- no, but has translated to yeah. where that energy is shifting out to other people. And that's beautiful. And that, you know, and to hear, mm-hmm. you know, every so often you get like a, a, whatever, you'll get a message from someone, you know, on say Instagram or something would be like, oh, that song or your, your guitar yeah. solo on that song really moved me or inspired me to pick up the guitar and, and I practiced for three hours today. Like to me, that's so much better than anything else. Yeah, that reciprocity mm-hmm, of resonance mm-hmm. is so meaningful. You're yeah. so right. And thank you for your generous and kind words about my own journey. But I am just so grateful for your willingness to spend this time with me and to share your experience and your life and your wisdom and how you are finding a way to 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 be all these different multivocal parts of a whole and allowing that wholeness to resound. Um, It's really beautiful, Jeff. Thank you so much for being willing to be on the show. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. So we're learning how to hold the wholeness of our multiple multidimensional maps (laughs) in a harmonic whole to see ourselves as so much more than just one thing, so much more than just this or that. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking with me from this conversation. I think the key piece that I'm going to tuck away and uh, use as a compass for the rest of my life is the way that Jeff focused on discovering a contentment around being our full selves and to see that as success. If I can just trust that if I am comfortable being my full self and creating from that space of confidence and radical okayness in just being me, that I can trust whatever's going to come from that. I don't have to manipulate the outcome. I don't need external markers of success. I can rest in the knowledge that if I'm in a state of flow where I am being my full authentic self, that whatever flows from that will be enough. That is enough. Second piece of True North Wisdom Don't fight against the change. Fight with it. Flow with it. Instead of being bitter about what has shifted or changed or what seems unfair now, try to locate the opportunities. Try to focus on the possibilities. Obviously, we spent some time discussing that as musicians, right? The music industry has radically changed and, you know, we make pennies, on streams where we used to make money off of our records. So it's easy to be frustrated. It would be very easy for us to become bitter. And yet the opportunity as a creative, which you know I consider every one of you to be, we have to recognize that every shift brings with it opportunity. 
So how can we open ourselves up to new ways of doing things and be energized by that, be motivated by that, be catalyzed into action by that, as opposed to becoming bitter, uh, nostalgic, or stagnant? Stretching is never comfortable for any of us. So yes, lots of how we knew life to be has changed What are the ways that you, in your own life, can turn toward the possible, turn toward a larger imagination in a positive way to see it as an opportunity for change and growth and possibility? Final piece of True North wisdom. You are so much more than one thing. I mean, like, you know that, right? We all know that. We're not just a thing, an accountant, a plumber, a musician, or a podcaster. We're a chord, an unfolding melody that's not finished. And when we choose to see ourselves in that way, when we choose to unknow the story that we have to have one vocational professional title to our name, we are moving with the flow of infinite possibility, the recognition that by freeing ourselves from that identity story, we're then capable of being liberated into our own becoming, (laughs) into becoming something so much larger, the story of what could be, one that we haven't even imagined yet for ourselves. That's it for today's episode. If this conversation was meaningful to you, or if you've been enjoying the previous seasons of a knowing podcast, I want to invite you to become a member and become a patron. By becoming a patron, you are making this podcast possible. By becoming a member, you will gain access to the Unknowing Learning Platform, connect with other members, and so much more. If membership isn't your thing, you can give tax-deductible donations to Unknowing. To learn more about both, you can visit unknowing.org or check the links in the notes of this episode. And remember, to quote Rebecca Solnit, leave the door open for the unknown the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go.